Welcome back to Comic Book Workshop. It's a podcast about the craft of making comics. I'm Jason Hammonds, and I am not an expert. I'm just trying to learn all I can from those who do it best. On this episode, I chat with writer Rodney Barnes. You'll know his work from Philadelphia, Quincredible, Lando, Double or Nothing, and his new comic imprint, Zombie Love Studios. Rodney and I discuss the process of developing and making Philadelphia, dealing with imposter syndrome, and examining history through horror. Those are just some of the uh, 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 tips of the icebergs. There's multiple icebergs in this scenario. Just run with me. Uh, there, there's so much in this conversation. I loved talking with Rodney. He uh, has such a great mind for story, has such an amazing perspective on storytelling in general um i mean obviously even outside of the realm of comics you would know his work from the boondocks uh you would know his work from the like the upcoming lakers series that people are talking about right now uh it's like truly from marvel's runaways like he's got such a breadth of work in so many different genres and and we talk about that we talk about you know writing across such a variety of genres and and all the lessons that he's learned along the way and you know kind of how he feels like he's you know coming into like these last few years have kind of been the closest he's he's been to writing exactly where he feels comfortable as a writer where he he likes to write and the things that he's most interested in um which was really interesting but I mean, truly, like, I guarantee you, you've watched a show that Rodney has written on. I mean, again, American Gods, uh, the Wu-Tang Saga, like, this dude has written so much. Uh, and so, you know, this discussion was amazing. Just getting his insight on storytelling uh, in various different mediums and various different genres was amazing. Um, so I know you will dig uh, this episode. But let's catch up for just a second before we dive on into it. Uh, I have been uh, taking up, you know, obviously my day job uh, at Netflix takes takes up so much time that, you know, the, the time after work is very precious and I, I try to maximize it as much as possible, which has been its own learning thing, right? Like I'm, I'm a habitual procrastinator and, uh, I'm, I'm like really working on, uh, trying to maximize my time as best as possible and, and, you know, figuring out the best processes and, and scheduling things and whatever to sort of, uh, make the best use of that time because it is so limited at this point And I have so many things that I, uh, want and, and, and need to do. Um, but that being said, these last couple of weeks, I've recorded so many interviews for the show. Um, I'm really, really excited for you all to listen to them. I've got like, let's see, three, four interviews that are already recorded uh, in the coming weeks and many more scheduled with creators that I absolutely adore. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited. And all of these interviews have been absolutely incredible. In fact, I just finished up one with a, a creative team uh, of a forthcoming comic. Um, actually, I'll just say it. I don't care. Um but just recorded with Kyle Starks and Chris Schweitzer, uh, the team behind the upcoming Skybound comic, The Six Sidekicks of uh, Trigger Keaton. Um, an amazing discussion about craft from two cartoonists who uh, are collaborating with each other and also do books on their own. So can't wait for you to listen to that discussion. We had Steve Fox on the show. Michael Walsh is coming up. Um, there's a lot of just very, very amazing um, discussions with these creators um, and more to come uh, after that. Uh, anyway, um, outside of recording these interviews, I've also uh, been taking some writing and drawing classes. Um, so two nights a week, I'm, I'm in class basically as soon as I'm off work, uh, which like I'm on the East Coast and working and taking classes on uh, Pacific time, which means that I'm, you know, in class until like 1am. 
Um, but it's really awesome. The drawing class I've been taking is uh, from Andy Kung, who's a storyboard artist uh, that, I mean, the thing that's coming out right now that he's done is, is Arlo, um, the uh, movie slash TV show from Netflix. It's like a musical show about uh, an alligator. Really cool. Um, but Andy is is an amazing, amazing storyboard artist uh, who has a really mechanical and granular understanding of sort of the theory of drawing, um, which is something that like for me personally, that is how I learn best is uh, from, you know, like learning the, in- I need to learn how the entire machine works uh, in order to effectively deploy it, right? And so I've taken a lot of gesture drawing classes before. Um, not, I mean, not a lot. I've taken one gesture drawing class before, and then I've just done a lot of reading and a lot of analyzing and stuff like that and trying to sort of study it on my own. Um, and thankfully, I've been in a position recently where I can afford to, like, take classes on my own and and not have to worry too much about it. Um, but, but something was kind of a breakthrough this week, um, at least for me personally. It felt like for a lot of people in the class... Um, Uh, but Andy was talking about, um, sort of, you know, you might hear, I mean, depending on your skill level, but you'll hear people talk about the line of action when you're doing gesture drawing and what gesture drawing means just briefly is, you know, drawing, uh, uh, very loose and, and sort of directional drawing based on shapes, uh, and based on, you know, a more impressionistic approach to, uh, anatomy that is more expressive and maybe less, um, sound anatomically but that that will really you know convey uh the mood or the action or whatever that you're trying to to sort of sell right so um anyway like anyone who doesn't know much about gesture drawing highly recommend sort of you know looking into it and and seeing how that can help your approach to comics uh but for those who do know you probably know a lot about you know the line of action and trying to sort of find um the line in a pose right people talk about the csi lines or ics lines which is you know your i-shaped line your s-shaped line and your c-shaped line and that you know the pose is is going to nearly always be comprised of one you know one or multiple of those three lines and that your line of action will tend to be one of them right that is sort of giving you the impression of what the pose is uh, as a whole um and, and the two sort of big things that Andy has unlocked for me uh, is when looking at the pose, trying to uh, look at the Z axis as well as the X and Y axis, right? Like, you know, the, the beginning gesture drawings, people tend to flatten the pose a lot and they will only look at it, you know, sort of horizontally and vertically, but not really look at the depth of it and consider what the pose is doing, you know, kind of away from the lens or away from the eye, if you will. Um, which was also, you know, just a big thing to sort of consider and like think about when I'm trying to do poses is to like kind of ground the pose first and, and think about where it's going, you know, depth wise. Um, but another thing he talks about is the, is the pinch point and that the pinch point of the pose is something that sort of contrasts on the other, you know, the opposite side of where you're finding the line of action. So, uh, I think that most of the ways that I've heard gesture drawing taught before try to start from the line of action and and have you sort of build around that, uh, which has always been a little bit of a struggle for me for some reason. I know it works for a lot of people, but for some reason, starting with the line of action is something that I haven't had an easy time with. Uh, but what Andy talks about or talked about this week was starting from the pinch point, which basically means the point of most compression in the pose, right? So, you know, generally the sort the core of the pose is going to be the core of the body, right? Between sort of the, the, you know, neck and, and pelvis, um, and trying to find that there. And sometimes it, 
extends out into the leg, but generally speaking, particularly the arms are going to be ancillary to the actual spirit of the pose. Um, so when you're looking at the core of the body, you want to try and look at the direction that it's crumpling the most or that it's bending the most, right? And that point that it's the most kind of crunched inward is going to be your pinch point. And the other side of the body from where that point is will inherently guide your line of action, right? So that between those two things, between the pinch point of the pose and the line of action on the outside of the body, right? The part where the body is stretching the most to correspond with that pitch, pinch point, right? Because every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, those are the two things that you sort of build the entire pose around. So you can find that one point of most compression. You can find the line of action as sort of the opposite to that. And from there, you can kind of build everything else in the pose around those two uh, uh, basic points, right? So if you're gesture drawing, then you can see how you can sort of push the pose of whatever, you know, if you're drawing from life, you can push the pose of whatever the model is doing by kind of making all of those things act in accordance with, with your line of action and with your pinch point. Um, but even when you're just drawing, you know, sort of from imagination or, or drawing on the page, you know, trying to, you know, you're, you're, you rough, you do your thumbs or whatever, and you sort of see the spirit of the action then, and then you can kind of you know, process it that way and think about like, okay, so now how is this body moving? Where is the pinch point? Where's the line of action? And how can I make those things flow with the rest of the drawing? Um, and, it, and it gets into the concept of, of just contrast, right? And to me, the thing that I, that I keep um, learning for myself and, and, you know, if anyone disagrees with this, please let me know. But the thing that to me seems like it's starting to come out as sort of a universal truth is that strong storytelling comes from contrast. You know, it comes from a character who contrasts the world that they are in or or stands as contrast, you know, to to, you know, whatever villain that they are facing. Or even if we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, composing a panel, right? Like it's it's that, you know, right, that 70, 30, you know, golden ratio or whatever, where the 70 is establishing sort of a status quo in an image, in a story, whatever. And that 30 percent is, is is establishing something that stands against that. And so when you're composing, you know, an image, you kind of want to that whatever the minority thing is in that image is going to be the thing that stands out. So if you just, you know, pour, you know, a bunch of red paint on, you know, on a canvas and then one yellow dot your eye is not going to the red paint, your eye is going to the yellow dot, right? Because it contrasts it. And, and you know, we talk about like when you're learning to um, like color theory and stuff like that, that's another big thing is even just value contrast, right? It's on the sort of the K scale that they talk about where, you know, colors from light to dark, right? If, if the majority of a panel is dark, then the thing your eye is going to be gravitated towards is the lightest point. Um, and so all of those things, right from down from, from, you know, c composing one image all the way to, you know, fleshing out your entire story arc, it all comes from contrast It all. It all sort of like, you know, cause if there's no contrast, there's no story, there's no, there's no tension, right? Because contrast is what's driving that tension. Um, or at least contrast is the representation of the tension. Uh, and so that, that to me, it's just like, it's so interesting how, you know, while I'm taking these classes in both writing and drawing, while I'm developing my own comics, while I'm, you know, watching movies, reading scripts, reading comics, all of that is, is kind of like centering lately for me around this idea of contrast and, and about always trying to hammer home, 
in a scene when two characters, you know, are, are, you know, discussing an issue or whatever, or anything like finding the contrast in whatever they can represent, right? So you can, you can show exactly, you know, just the clarity of storytelling where you can show what your character is trying to overcome. You can show, you know, sort of what, what is opposing them. You can show whatever the complication is that's coming up, contrasting the other scenarios that they're facing, whatever it like, you know, these are all like oversimplifications, but it's just interesting to try and constantly be thinking about contrast as a way of sort of effectively selling your story and thinking about the, you know, I guess like, and I, I am not a music expert, so I'm probably going to botch this explanation, but, but in jazz that you have that sort of like, um, what do they call it? A baseline or whatever, like the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the constant thing, the, the beat or whatever that is sort of, you know, going to be, you know, you're returning to throughout, you know, your piece, you're constantly going back to that comfortable zone, that jazz line, that thing that people are used to. And then, you know, sort of the, the transformative effect comes when you contrast that line, right? When you, when you color outside the lines, when you get away from that baseline, it starts to feel uncomfortable. It starts to feel tense. It feels exciting. It feels, you know, enticing, whatever. Um, and so, you know, just, just throughout your story, understanding not only the thing that, that you're, you know, like your hero, your struggle, whatever, understanding what that baseline is that you need to contrast it against and making sure that they stand out next to one another, right? You know, that, that, that whatever the problem is in the world, whatever the sort of, you know, relationship is that needs to be repaired, whatever, you know, like all that stuff, uh, uh, finding, you know, that, that things to make sure that that feeling is omnipresent, that feeling that, that something is wrong and needs to be solved or that something is opposing. Right. Um, so I don't know, that's stuff that I've been thinking about. That's just like sort of what's been coming up in, in my notes and, and the things that I've like been learning and listening to. Um, and so it's, I don't know, it's something interesting to think about. And, and again, like, tell me if, if you think that, 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 um, I'm kind of off base here. Cause I, uh, am very curious to know if, if anyone sort of feels like that might be true. Um, but currently it's helping me with my writing and it's helping me with my drawing. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, uh, move forward with it until such a point that I feel like it's um, making me produce bad work. But, um, anyway, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking about this week. So hopefully, Hopefully y'all are, are digging that and uh, and thinking that at least it gets you to start thinking um, about this kind of thing. And, and if you have opposing thoughts, let me know. But uh, before we get into the interview with Rodney, uh, I want to introduce you all to Garm and, and, you know, longtime listeners will know them by now. They've been on the last few episodes, uh, but Garm is the graphic artist resource management company. They uh, provide tools for digital artists to, uh, you know, put their art over the edge and, and get it to that next level. Um You'll see in a lot of my work that I have, you know, kind of like distressed effects, halftone effects, stippling effects, like, you know, various different things like that. And Garm is one of the primary uh, resources that I use to uh, uh, sort of achieve those effects, right? You know, because honestly, like stippling in general, if I were to just, you know, like if I were to use stipple effects without, you know, this kind of resource, it would take so long and it's hard you know, one of the downsides of working digitally, which I primarily do in my comics, uh, is is that there is you you're not quite able to do those very quick, uh, even movements the same way that you are with just a pen and page. Um, and so these tools are kind of there to help you achieve those things without having to like constantly be control zing every single dot that you're making or every line that you're making because sometimes the touch is going to misregister or if you're like doing a bunch of dots really quickly in succession, it's going to like think that you're just making a line. There's all that, you know, problems that come up. Um, and so Garm makes it easy to achieve these sort of more traditional looks with digital art. 
Um, my favorite kit personally is the rawhide kit. I use it all the time. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. So go to garmcompany.com slash TMBC and that'll get you 20% off anything that you order. So again, that's garmcompany.com slash TMBC. Um, and a reminder, you can follow the show at TMBC Workshop. You can follow me at Jason Halftones. And of course, you can follow Rodney at the Rodney Barnes. And without further ado, I am going to kick it right on over into my interview with Rodney Barnes. Welcome back to Comic Book Workshop, where today we have our guest writer, Rodney Barnes. Welcome to the show, Rodney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's it's good to have you. And uh, of course, uh, one of the you know big reasons that we're talking in the context of Comic Book Workshop is is obviously your, your now long-running and successful comic, Philadelphia. It seems like almost, you know, it seems so recent that it launched, but you're what, 12 issues deep now? Thir- well, 13. As oh, of wow. Just Jason and I just finished the 13th. Wow, that's uh, that's awesome. I, I I definitely want to dive a lot in on on Philadelphia as well as of course Zombie Love Studios and uh, other subjects in the comic book uh, uh, realm as as you know as it pertains to your writing. But I kind of want to uh, go back and talk a little bit about where you first fell in love with comics. When did the medium of comics first grab your attention and, and draw you in? Uh, my mother was a um, school teacher, public school teacher in mm-hmm. uh, Annapolis, Maryland. And she used to do her lesson plans at the public library. And there was always this little area, almost like a pen, that they would put mm-hmm. kids in. <laughs> and they had uh, all your regular fare, the cat in the hat, you know, all the Dr. Seuss, Curious George, Ping the sure. Duck, all of that stuff. And under those books was a box. And inside of that box were comic books. And I knew exactly <laughs> where that box was. And every Saturday, seemingly, um, I would go and um, explore that box. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've come to find that I wish I had stolen those things as a kid. I'd be a rich man. <laughs> but um, sure, that was sort of where the, you know, the connection was made. And then uh-huh. when I got a little bit older, I found that every convenience store, liquor store, drug store had a spiral like behind me of comic yeah. books. And was that... I'm curious that the you you have a spinner rack right behind you. Is that one of those ones that they launched on Kickstarter recently, or is that one that you? Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I have an original older one you Amazing. can't see on the other side of this sure. uh, massive computer, but I have one that I just got that one and another one. Oh man, I'm and jealous. Really I, nice. I I missed those uh, those Kickstarters. I saw them after they uh, they already were over. But uh, those it's always nice seeing a spinner rack in someone's office. It's oh a good yeah. Thing. <laughs> it takes you back to a very specific time. A hundred percent. So that's sort of where, you know, th- this thing was able to, um, there was enough availability at the time and they were in the perfect price range at like a sure. quarter or 30 cents to get a kid addicted and <laughs> move through life as they became more expensive. I made sure. more money. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's that's awesome. What do you remember the first uh specific comics that really like kind of drew your love or attention or just the ones that like in terms of, you know, the medium as it came to be, right? Are there are there any seminal issues or books or whatever well, that that stand out? It's in two it comes in two parts. You know, there right. was a point when I was a kid where I love Neil Adams, uh mm. Neil Adams covers and art. I mean, his art just kind of blew me away. Um, sure. And I don't know how deeply I was reading the stories at the time. Um, yeah. 
There's another one with uh, Mike Grell and the Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes and then George oh, yeah. Perez and George and John Byrne on the Avengers, right. and ultimately the X-Men. Um, you know, all of that stuff I loved. And uh-huh. then something happened uh, where Frank Miller did Daredevil, Alan right. Moore did Miracle Man and Swamp Thing. Sure. Um, Neil Gaiman was doing Miracle Man after Alan Moore mm-hmm. and then into Sandman that it became like literature and I really started paying attention to the stories and I yeah. really started to read like I would read conventional literature for lack of a better way of saying it. And sure, um, sure. that sort of deepened the relationship from a completely different place. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's, it's during that like hot period in the eighties where, where like there was such a creative boom. It felt like uh, uh, throughout the yeah. industry, yeah, were you ever ball. a Marvel? Totally. Were you ever like a, a kid who favored Marvel or DC or does did you kind of play I always, the field? I always favored um, artists and creators. It was like there was this thing where I followed, I knew artists enough. I paid attention early on. I was that mm-hmm. kid that um, guys like Jim Starlin and Barry Windsor Smith and oh, yeah. um, Mike Plug with the monster stuff and Bernie Wrightson with the monster stuff. It's like whether they did Marvel or DC work, mm-hmm. I sort of followed – you know, I, I could tolerate the stories, you know, as long as the art was like incredible. <laughs> you know, nothing against Denny O'Neill and all the guys who wrote those great Green Lantern, sure. uh, Batman stories, detective stories. But and Jim Starlin's Warlock was incredible and yeah. the death of Captain Marvel and that stuff. But um, I really, you know, art was the first draw as a kid. And right. then story became secondary as I became more, more of an evolved reader. Did you ever draw yourself or, or was that oh, ever a thing that I was tried. an aspiration? Oh, I tried. <laughs> uh, I can't draw. My brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, Jason and I, Jason Sean Alexander, who draws Philadelphia, yeah. um, we'll be together and talking <laughs> and he'll have a little sketch pad in front of him and he'll draw what looks to me like fine art. And <laughs> sure. I'll pick up a pen and it looks like a deranged, uh, the notes of a deranged serial killer. Like <laughs> that's not even a human being. It's like a demonic sure. figure of something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah that's interesting you talk about um you know and obviously i'm sure that uh you know the the 2020 of it all has changed things but but it sounds like you from from what you said there and also what i've kind of heard from other interviews with you it sounds like you and jason have had a pretty uh close collaboration where you guys have have been able to be together in person a lot and kind of like work out you know story together and it even sounds like this developed for a long time but what is your usual collaboration like when you guys get together well, Jason and I, it's uh, very loose um, for mm-hmm. lack of uh, taking into consideration the past hour of us texting one another. Um, <laughs> I, um, it, it, How Jason and I got together, he was hired on a art book. Someone wanted to do a feature on his art, and somehow they hired me to do the uh, interview. Oh, and he only lives a mile away from me, or I live a mile away oh, from wow. him. And so we would meet at a restaurant and just sit and talk. And uh-huh. that led to, even after the interview, every couple of weeks, once a month or so, we would just keep getting together and talking. And oh. I would pitch him things and he would pitch me things. And we both hated each other's things. And um, <laughs> one day uh, he was sipping whiskey and uh, I was pitching him Philadelphia, mm-hmm. And he didn't tell me he hated it. And 
you know, the next day he called me and he said, that thing you were pitching me, the vampires and all of that, he said, you have that down on paper. And I said, no, it was just really in my head. And um, he said, you should write it down. I think that's what we could do together. And mm-hmm. so our process has sort of been, um, I write a lot. I give it to him. Uh-huh. He reads it. Uh, if there's nothing wrong with it. Lately, he's been texting me how he feels about it. The first <laughs> round, he would just start drawing and say, were well, you thinking something like this? And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, okay, so this is real. He really wants to do this. He really likes this thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it's very loose. The the couple books I did with Marvel, the three, I guess four now, I'm done with Marvel, and the ones I'm doing with Lion Forge, I rarely see the art or in part of the process. I usually give them a script. Editors will give me notes. Right. And a book, one day a book shows up. With Jason, <laughs> uh, because of the nature of how Image is, it really is independent comics, I can yeah. go on a Dropbox and see where the stages of the art are. And then there'll be times where he'll say, and he doesn't say this as much anymore because he's busy. Maybe instead of two pages with this, this should be three pages. Or maybe (laughs) we should let this breathe a little bit. Or maybe we should do this. Um, If the artist is asking to do more drawing, then, uh, you know, never a bad thing. I think if he could do five pages, (laughs) he would be happy uh, to do five. So Hyper compressed storytelling. Yes, very much so. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious. So I, I've I've heard you talk about the um, the origins of Philadelphia, and uh, you've mentioned at some point that the first version of the story, when it was you know being pitched for you know TV or film or whatever, uh, took place in in Compton. And so I'm I'm wondering how different. It, obviously, like you know Philadelphia, John Adams, all the stuff that kind of ties into to that area and sort of historical origin of the country. How different was this story in its initial iteration in Compton and and sort of in a it was medium? incredibly different. It was a um, I was trying to do like the Star Wars of vampires type story. Sure. There was this uh, Jedi thing. It wasn't called the Jedi, but it was this. Um, <laughs> mythical order of vampires who did a thing and they had come back to modern day to sort of reclaim their throne. And it was nowhere near as personal. I was just writing a story. And I had actually another story that I wanted to do with vampires that was more personal. And so I Mm -hmm. just took the two worlds and sort of merged them together and um, found the Philadelphia in it. But um, interesting, you know, like I said, the first one, that was a movie actually that um, someone, a big producer was interested in buying. Uh, you know, it was, I'm glad it didn't happen actually, uh, right. but it was very superficial. You know, it was one of those, it was more of an action thing with a couple of moments of like the introspective stuff that's in Philadelphia. Right. Um, but yeah. And was it so, so, you know, as it shifted locations and I kind of sound as like shifted genres. Uh, at what point do you start crap, you know, or, or figuring out or realizing whatever the, you know, the, the father son element of the story, the John Adams of it all, like where, where does that stuff all come in? What's, what's kind of in your head? That's that stuff <clears throat> That's in? a great question. No one's ever asked that question before. Um, <laughs> it was, I had a personal crisis in my life um, somewhere around it lasted about four years, uh, from mm. 2010 to about 2014, and I got really, mm. really sick, uh, almost died, wow. and was in the hospital on and off for almost six months. Mm. And during that period of time, like I have two, my career is sort of in 
two places. Like you, if you look at my early work as sitcoms, um, yeah, uh, and you look at the second half now, it's more it's drama, drama and genre. Yeah. And a lot of that came about because of, um, you know, I, I was I was working those first 10 years, not to say I don't appreciate that work, sure. but I really wasn't speaking to a lot of the stuff that I ultimately wanted to do right. both personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was a working writer in Hollywood and yeah. I sort of abandoned the idea of writing from my heart and I was mostly writing from my head. And so when it came around, you know, I sort of made this promise to myself, if I ever made it out of the hospital, I had an opportunity to work again, Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to write from my heart. I was going to write about the stuff that I loved. And right. what I loved was always horror comics, um, huge Stephen King fan. Sure. And <clears throat> there's a personal nature to Mr. King's work yeah. that always feels like it's connected to him on some level, you know? Sure. And I, my work was devoid of that. The first 10, maybe even 15 years of my work was mostly interpreting someone else's ideas or sure. being hired to come in to rewrite a thing or to compliment something, never really sure. writing from me. Yeah. And so when the opportunity uh, came to do Philadelphia, and I had done some books before then, and I was sort of trying to force that Philadelphia feel into things that weren't Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, the opportunity sort of came to do it exactly how I wanted it to do and with someone whose work I felt complements the story that I'm trying to tell and uh, right. the story we're telling, but the one I'm writing. And, you know, I, I look at Jason like a director in a way, like he's sort of, yeah. um, it's not just interpreting my words. He, the facial expressions, the movements, the gestures, the horror. Yeah, the um, lighting. A lot and of the, the, the lighting. Um, he creates, I said this yesterday, that he sort of creates a tone that even yeah. isn't present on the page um, of my script. Like mm. he, he comes up with that thing himself. And so totally. it's equal parts, both of us. And so, you know, all of that sort of came from my personal evolution. And mm. I think finding the universe, putting Jason and I together to walk on this journey and path together. Right. right. And so what, what was the, what was the the uh, impetus or the the thing in your head of like tying this back to like sort of the the history of of the United States, right? Like this this kind of very mired and and uh, complicated and often yeah. bad history that that obviously involves John Adams. That's another good one. Um, I, I think for me, what I heard a lot, certainly through a lot of people, you look mm-hmm. at Black Lives Matter, you look at a lot of the protests after George Floyd, um, right. And I'm old enough that I remember several of those moments in America, you know, from mm-hmm. the late end of the civil rights movement to, you know, the Black Panthers and just a myriad of protests that seemed to be a part of uh, America's backdrop. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt like those folks didn't necessarily have a voice, you know, like my culture didn't have. Um, is. <clears throat> America has a very America has a way that it tells its story about history. <laughs> we all go to school and we all learn what American history is. And in February, you get a quick twenty-eight days worth of uh, leap year. You might get twenty-nine. Yeah, of, um, shortest uh, month in the year. Shortest month of the year. A quick dose of what um, you know Black history is, but even that is relatively mild and tame. 
Yeah. This person invented this. This person invented that. Dr. King, slavery, civil rights movement, a couple right. movies on TV, then it's gone. Sure. And it's it doesn't really resonate, I think, in the entire idea of what America is. Um, it's like an afterthought. It's an ancillary yeah. thought that's sort of hanging Chad that just <laughs> kind of sitting there dangling. Yeah, rather than and, sort of this intrinsic thing weaved yes. into the DNA. Yeah. Yes. And so I don't think America... Um, by and large, doesn't have the requisite empathy because it's not really part of the story. It's not mm. part of the main story. It feels like, like in Philadelphia, we have a backup story. You know, it's like <laughs> sure. it feels like a backup story. You People know, view it not... as the B plot or the C plot or something. Exactly. And yeah. in order for it to resonate as the star of the story, um, it needs to be integrated into the main story and put on equal footing. Right. So. I would hear all the time from certain pundits that, you know, what's history got to do with this? What's slavery got to do with this? What's civil, the Civil War have to do with this? That's so long ago. Sure. And A, it's really not that long ago. Uh, it's long ago, but it's not that long <laughs> ago. But the DNA of a lot of the problems I think we have socially and politically still, to me, resonate and were born during that period of time. Oh, yeah. And we're not that look, old of a country, really. <laughs> like, no, not at all. I mean, yeah. we can go from 1619 um, to 1776 and yeah. to today, and you can see this happened here, and then it evolved to this, then it evolved to that, and then it evolved to here. Right. So in thinking about a horror story, you know, a ghost really can't tell that story because a ghost is a ghost. Yeah. And a zombie can't tell that story because a zombie really can't talk unless you get it's wonder how creative they get on the walking day. <laughs> um we can go down the list. Werewolves, right. this, da, 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 da. but a vampire, you know, That's still has the ability to recollect the past. Yeah. And can carry the past with them. Right. And not your standard vampire. If you're going from the, the Bella Lugosi, Christopher Lee, Frank Langella, Brown Stoker's sure. version, um, though they just want blood right. and sexy women and sexy outfits <laughs> and right. capes and, and uh, you know, that type yeah, of stuff. Yeah, all the sort of fetishy elements of vampires. Yeah, that's all they really want. And yeah. they're pretty single-minded in their pursuit <laughs> yeah. of those things. Yeah. But it's a very flexible archetype, you know, like there's a lot of different, like you're saying, there's a lot of interpretations that can allow for, yeah. Yes, but the foundation of them up to a certain point was typically the same. And I started reading a lot of Anne Rice and I noticed Mm. that I'm like um, Louis and Lestat and, you know, Armand, all of those vampires sort of had a a memory. Mm -hmm. And those memories were oftentimes the stories that they told, you know, had ancillary elements to them. Right. That had to do with history. It yeah. wasn't at the fore, but it was it was there. So my thing yeah. was, what if instead of having it off to the side, you actually put it in the main story? But in order yeah. to do that, you have to change the nature of what the vampire is. How do you change that? You add trauma to it. Okay. And you make trauma sort of the central focal point of the echo of who they were as human beings. Like we as people, you know, yeah. therapy. I have a therapist. Um, sure. And you often find that trauma in childhood, you know, plays a role in how the habits that we form that yeah. walk through Those life echoes with us. and ribbles, ripples and yeah. What if instead of 40, 50 years of that, you have 200, 300 years of that? Right. And the habits, the, the, the habits that sort of walk with that trauma. And so the way that I tell the Philadelphia story is a character, Toppy, and he was in Deadwood and he lost his family. And mm-hmm. 
Brittany and Brianna, the two girls, they were slaves. And that's when they met uh, Abigail and mm-hmm. Jupiter is sort of the walking embodiment of slavery and the anger that came with it, that the unresolved right. anger, because yeah. no one's ever really dealt with that before. Um, so each character has a place that they come from, that there was a thing when they were human beings that they never really wrestled with. Right. That, you know, they're kind of bringing into modern day. And to your question, you know, the personal part of it for me was um, I didn't grow up with my father. Uh-huh. And we I moved in with him when uh, I was 17. And we bumped heads a lot because we didn't. It was two strangers coming together. Sure. Yeah. Just shared you're, you're almost an adult at that point. So it's. Exactly. Yeah. So it's hard to come in and really, hey, you're going to do this now. Nah, nah, come on. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a man now. You can't. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've seen a few things. I've lived my own experience. Exactly. You like, can't yeah. just completely erase that thing that you weren't there to see. So, totally. And I think whatever animosity I felt, whatever guilt that he felt, you know, and all of that made it difficult to uh, make peace. And then I had a son and I came to find that, you know, there were a lot of skills as a parent that I lacked. Mm. And so my parenting wasn't the best, right? but I loved him and he loved me, but it also made me more empathetic for my father to say, what if he had gone through something? Maybe this wasn't personal. Maybe the way that he was as a father wasn't necessarily just about me. It was more about him. And so, you know, unfortunately he's no longer with us and we didn't always, we didn't tie up on a nice bow the end, but I started thinking, what if we had more time? What if, would we have been able to patch up, you know, our differences like my son and I work towards and what could give you more time? What creation of a a vampire? So if I made dad a vampire, (laughs) he was able to come back and somehow we were still connected to one another. Yeah. Then we would have to face all the, and I gave you a mission, like the father and son have to work together for a very important mission. So they need each other. Mm-hmm. But they've still got this echo of this stuff that's still there from when, yeah. you know, the past. Like to be able to work together, there's they have to break through the wall that's between them, right? There you go. And yeah. that's sort of the math of the sanctuary relationship and the part that connects most most to me. Man, that's that's a really... I mean, like it's it's always one of my favorite things. You know, I, I tend to exist a lot in the sort of genre storytelling space, right? Like it's it's the thing that activates me. And I think that one of the most amazing things is when people can find ways to tie a genre convention into a really, you know, like prescient story, like, like you're talking about to be like, okay, how can the history, how can mm-hmm. history and the past talk to us? How can our previous generations talk to us? How can we have a, you know, a relationship with with parents who are no longer there? And to use vampires as as a way of telling that is so, that's like amazingly uh, clever and interesting. I, I feel like that's uh, thank you. I don't know that that's awesome. Um, thank yeah. you. It's therapy for me. It's more of <laughs> sure. a. It's funny because Jason just posted on Twitter. And he's telling the absolute truth to anyone who's hearing this. It's like we had done two successful story arcs. You know, we sold Uh out of issue 12. And he's thinking to himself, as I was thinking to myself, what do we do now for arc number three? And what I tend to do is to start from that place of what's bothering me? You know, it's like, where, where am I? What's, what's still, you know, I know I've still got a bunch of stuff to unpack in me. That's sure. the Sankster story. And then it's like, all right, what's America wrestling with? How can I deal with this in a much more personal way? Yeah. And I think 
you know, when the fans send me messages and uh, the ones that dig it, you know, it, the thing that improves in the book is it becomes more and more and more and more personal. Yeah. The first six issues were more or less laying a foundation for what the world would be. These are the characters. This is what they do. Sure. And I won't say I raced through the first six issues, but I wanted to set a tone and a pace. And I think the second six uh, departed from that a little bit and became a little right. more. We went to heaven and hell and purgatory and did some other things. But all of those places, like what I've come to semi-believe when it comes uh -huh. to religion and philosophy, is a lot of what we call religion and philosophy is really just um, metaphors for life. And totally. the stories that kind of mold and shape parables that of this is how you should live and the consequences that people have suffered over time because they didn't live or they went against yep. the grain of life totally. and i'm like okay maybe i can infuse some of that into this as well instead of just dealing with the trauma of it i can deal with the healing of it as well right and so not saying that i'm giving answers but when i yep. start talking about forgiveness and you see one character talk about um you know, and seeing the benefit of that, like I'm able to hug my son, I'm able yeah. to say I love you, I'm able to do things that I couldn't do only because I was able to cross this bridge of mm -hmm. forgiving someone who I had such animosity with and such, you know, uh, the math of the relationship with the Sykes's was their mother sort of played referee. Yeah. And when she died, there was no referee, we got to figure <laughs> yeah. it out. And being able to play on those themes and then come back to them because, you know, I look at trauma a lot like addiction where sure. yeah. just because you go to AA and just because you do all of the right things, the addiction doesn't leave you alone. It's still there. It's still walking with you. It's still trying to, ah, it's banging the doors. Let me out. Let's yeah, do the totally. thing I want you to do. Yeah. And you got to constantly be patching up the door and repairing the little holes that come to make sure it doesn't burst through. Exactly. And so our vampires in this story are sort of going through the same thing of needing a sense of purpose, which I think we all had. Mm -hmm. uh, we all need something to live for. It's not just the idea of a beating heart and lungs that fill with air. Right. It's about finding purpose. And yeah. these vampires want purpose. You know, the ones that are enlightened and evolved. The other ones just want blood. They just want to tear shit up and they want to just break <laughs> yeah. things down and they want to do things. Yeah. But the ones that are enlightened, John Adams is looking for, why am I here? Right. You know, and he's figured out something. And Abigail is looking to overcome the patriarchy that she had to, um, you know, deal with. And right. so it's a myriad of themes. It's a messy totally. stuff. I, yeah. I, I, it was these guys uh, talking about it this morning. And they said something that um, when I used to pitch to Jason, he would laugh. <laughs> And he said, if you just talk about this book, about what it's about, you sound like you're crazy. <laughs> John Adams is a vampire and he's doing this and Abigail is with him and blah, blah, sure. blah. And it sounds like they're in film. It just sounds like madness. Yeah. But there's a way, there's a method behind the madness that I think makes it feel very grounded and doesn't yep. make it feel quite as weird as the dime store pitch. I used to pitch totally. in Hamilton meets Sanford and Son meets Dracula. And... Um, <laughs> So there you go. I and again, like that that's a thing that I really love and it's it's a thing that I try to do in my own work is taking taking a very pulpy premise, you know, like taking something that on the surface is just like batshit insane, you know, like the most wild stuff that that seems, you know, uh kind of inordinate in some ways, but then realizing that underneath that sort of surface, you know, 
uh, the flashy, glitzy, whatever, like is is a very deep and sort of prescient story that is that has really you know thematic roots. And and honestly, it sounds like from what you're saying, it's it sounds like you're a very theme first writer. Do you, do, do you tend to agree with that, or do you is that something that certainly you use comes to, to sort of guide you? Certainly, when it comes to comics uh, and graphic novels. Um, not so much when it comes to television or film. Uh, I try to incorporate as much of it as I can, but mm-hmm. because those tend to be, at least in the worlds that I occupy, more plot-driven. Um, right. With comics, it's certainly an independent one that I can sort of control the narrative. Uh, sure. I try to come from more of a character place because you run out of, and I think in my early Marvel uh, comics, uh, Falcon, and to a lesser degree, Lando, Mm-hmm. They suffered from plot. They actually mm-hmm. suffered from this happens, that happens, this happens, that happens, the end. Sure. And I was more tied to um, making sure I had my beats together more right. so than thematically what am I saying under these things. Yeah. And Philadelphia is all that. It's like every time you see a page, everything that's on that page yeah. is really – it's moving. It's advancing plot uh, sometimes – I think it was issue number four where it was all about, okay, these people have earned, you know, they've earned <laughs> a quick plot drive and some action and some movement. Um, yeah. if you stayed with me through John Adams's story and the sanctions bitching with each other and this, all right, I'm going to give you some blood and guts uh, for yeah. a minute. But I try to stay more theme and character oriented. And um, sure. in fact, before I write a script, I actually say, what's the theme of this issue? Um, Sometimes mm-hmm. it's love. Sometimes it's forgiveness. Sometimes it's anger. Interesting. Um, it, sometimes it's insecurity. Um, it's a myriad of things. Sometimes all of those things can come into a book. Right. Uh, and, you know, I try to make sure that they they even themselves out, that it's not just, um, you know, one character pontificating on and on and on about a particular thing. But right. I really want you to feel what I feel when I'm going through it. Yeah. And and do you use in talking about? It's interesting that you that you sort of figure out the theme before you start writing. Is that something that you use as as kind of a north star if you're ever like mm-hmm. writing an issue and you can't quite crack like a scene or a mm-hmm. like you know? How, do you just go back and try to say, okay, what can I? How like what does this need to do in relation to the theme? Or how do you kind of use that? Um, I usually go with again. It starts with me, and right. if when I'm going through. Um, uh, there's a Philadelphia spinoff and Mm -hmm. um, I was starting down a path of becoming the plot guy again. (laughs) Nah, I can't, can't do that. Can't do that. And I found three great pages in my head that Mm -hmm. I really, really loved. And they set a tone and the next two or three felt like they were going back to that other place. And I said, the way I felt with those three, I want these other two to feel that way too. How can I give the same information? How can I get the same information across and have it fit the idea of the first three that can move me? Right. If if I'm not moved, you won't be. And even yeah. if I'm really trying, you know, so yeah, I try really hard at the depths of who I am as a person to find something that matters to me. What really, really, really matters to me and how does, how does that, you know, uh, kind of play a role in this story sure and i do that from page one to page 20 or 22 or 24 or whatever right and it's hard um yeah there are times where i can write a book in a couple of days 
Sometimes it'll take a week. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it'll take two because when it's not working, I know. Yeah. And Jason is my first uh, bridge to whether something is working or not working. And when I send it to him, because he's always looking at it to what do I have to draw? You mm-hmm. know, that's the first thing. What do you have me draw? And when he says, dude, I love this. Oh, dude, you did it again. Oh, man. <laughs> that's really all I need because – Right. You know, we are truly partners in this endeavor, and I want him to always be motivated to draw the images. I always want him to you what you said a moment ago about no artist really wanting to draw more pages. I want (laughs) him to want to draw more pages. I want to inspire him. And Jason is a fine artist as much as he is a you know illustrator of graphic novels. And so I want to inspire the fine artists in him to give me the stuff, the Barry Windsor Smith Conan stuff. Right. Um, I'm trying to get that out of him. So he's the first guy that I'm really trying to impress. And I'm hoping that that feeds out into what you feel as a reader. Right. Yeah. And I I will say, like, in terms of, you know, artists who like almost that that I a little bit would equate to to like, you know, method actors or something. Jason is one of those artists who uh, to me, when I see the way the, the things that go into his process, the mm-hmm. things that he involves in, right? Like I've seen him for pages of comics, you know, like painting on these enormous canvases, breaking out like the airbrushes and the mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's very uh, interesting. And I feel like there is such a, a viscerality that translates on the page just from how much extra he's sort of putting into to the pages. Yeah, it's um, it's incredible. And I think sometimes as writers, um, we don't appreciate it. I'll say for me, I don't appreciate how much effort goes into the art because I'm thinking, oh, you're just good at it. So mm-hmm. you're good at it. So you just, it's easy for you to do. Right. And when I see his process and Joshua Kassara, who did Falcon as well, you know, mm-hmm. how much labor intensive and the same process that I'm going through emotionally, that person's going through emotionally as well to convey those words. Right. Um, a degree of empathy is born because, you know, you, <laughs> You get it now. I get why you want to do 22 pages and not, you know, 24. And right, I, yeah. I understand why it's so difficult. It's not just you. The sweat equity that you're putting into a thing is actually an emotional thing as well. You're pouring yourself into literally um, this book. And so I feel right. a responsibility as a writer to, to, to not only not try to kill the guy, but also to put my best effort into it as well. Right. Um. Now I want to I want to come back and talk about zombie love and some of the things that are that are coming up. But um, beforehand, I, I, I sort of want to touch on some of the the early career days. Um, I mean, one thing that I'm wondering is when did writing as a career kind of enter into your purview? When was that something that you were like, you know what, maybe I should actually do this. This is something I should pursue. When I was in junior high school, it was either junior high or high. I'm getting old mm-hmm. now, so I'm starting to forget. <laughs> Um, I had a teacher, a journalism teacher, Mr. Jay Silverberg. Uh, he's mm-hmm. no longer with us. But um, I used to be the class clown. I used to talk all the time. And it was usually my way of dealing with insecurity. I'm going <laughs> to say something funny before someone can see a flaw in me and say something funny about me. Right. And um, one day to shut me up, he gave me this really big assignment in the school newspaper. And he presented it such that Um, I know you can't do this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And because I didn't want to look like a fool Uh and to accept his challenge, 
I put my heart and soul into it. And when I turned it in the next day, he stood in front of the class and he said, one of our students has done an incredible thing. And he brought me up to the front of the class. And he said, Mr. Barnes, if you ever decided you wanted to be a good writer instead of being, and he said a great writer, instead of being a class clown, I think you could do it. And I think I made a joke because that's what I do. And um, I sat down, but in the back of my head, someone had validated something about me um, that didn't just come from, you know, a joke or shooting a basketball or playing (laughs) a game or anything. Yeah. And it sat there. It just sat in the back of my head. Um, When anybody would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I just said writer from that point on. Didn't have any idea what that meant. Didn't know how you got paid to do that. Didn't know sure. what the bridge was from, I'm from a small town in Maryland. Yeah. How you made that bridge from there to where ultimately I am now, had no idea. And so, right. you know, that's where it was sort of born. Now, I'm curious, and, and you know, I think, you know, one thing I, I, there's a lot that I personally relate to there, but you and I both you know, are people from, I'm from a small town in Utah, you're from a small town in Maryland and, you know, like going to LA and, and sort of finding your footing in the television and, and film industry can be kind of a, a difficult and arduous thing with a lot of gaps in employment. Uh, and yes. I'm curious in those early days when, you know, like you've, you've kind of found your way into some gigs, but you're, you know, sort of, cause I, at least for me, the, the advice that people always gave was like, the most important thing is staying there. Like the most important thing is being in LA so that you can, you know, keep talking to people and keep finding those jobs, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. did you have a sort of resting anxiety about like at any moment, you know, you might like be out of work, out of the industry, whatever, like, and how did you combat that? If so. Well, it's a little deeper than that for me. Um, I have had massive insecurity for the better part of my life mm. and uh, still to lesser or greater degrees deal with it. So, right. you know, when it came time for me to take my shot at coming to Hollywood and making it, I lived in my car for a long time mm. and um, I got an opportunity or two after I was a production assistant, security guard, location manager. I was everything sure. that you could possibly be. And I got an opportunity to write. But I was, once I got into a writer's room, it actually was worse because uh, you take insecurity and you put imposter syndrome mm-hmm. um, on top of that yeah. and fear that this is going to go away at any moment. You know, you add that to it too. And I'll say the first decade of my career, um, I was miserable. Uh, just, I lived in abject fear damn near just every day. trying to survive. Just trying to survive, afraid it's going to go away. I don't deserve this. Why am I here? They're going to find yeah. out one day that I, I can't do this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. ah, you know, just I... <laughs> lots and lots of stuff, noise. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't, my humor at the time wasn't like, uh, I didn't allow whatever skill I had or talent I have. I wasn't secure enough to allow that to, to come through. I sort of used the most crass, juvenile, the stuff that I had at the stuff that was connected to being a class clown. I was that yeah. guy. Yeah, it's I the would, deflection um, stuff. The, yes, the sort of, any yeah. of that that would get a reaction. Uh, and yeah. that reaction, you know, that was my thing. And yeah. I'm like, okay, whew, I made it through another day. I made it through another day. But I never took into consideration that this isn't the best version of me, A. 
Sometimes right. maybe I'm saying something that could be hurting someone's feelings. Huh. I think insecurity breeds its own form of narcissism in a way that um, you're so worried about being found out and it's so much about you that you mm-hmm. don't really take anybody else's feelings or thoughts or into, into consideration because you're so focused on yourself. Right. And back to, again, that blip that I had of those three, four years when I was uh, going through some hard times and I was sick. Yeah. I had a lot of time to sit back and reflect. And I had a lot of folks who were able, I was able to sort of um, dialogue with who knew more than me, were more experienced, um, more stable minded, had gone mm-hmm. through a lot of what I had gone through and really helped me get on a path that was more connected to who I wanted to be and who I was yeah. rather than this person that's desperately trying to hold on to this rope. And I saw uh, this video the other day of a kid who was screaming, holding on to this rope, thinking he was drowning. And his mother comes up and just says, stand up. You know, and the water was only like two feet deep. Sure, sure. That's sort of the world that I was in. And part of the epiphany was if, um, if I could write from my heart and I could begin to live more from a thoughtful place, mm-hmm. um, I would like myself better. Yeah. And people around me would be more connected to me emotionally because mm-hmm. I was more vulnerable rather than insecure. Um, And things just started to, you know, it's still a process. You catch Rodney on the wrong day and whatever, (laughs) you never know what you, what you're going to get. But more days than not, I I think I'm, I'm able to find a better version of myself that sort of doesn't give as much way to, Oh shit, this is going to end at any moment. And right. I'm going to be gone. I mean, I think when it comes to writing specifically, mm-hmm. what I've found is if I give a project the right amount, a right amount of time and effort, uh-huh. I'm going to be happy with the work. If I put enough of myself into it, I can live with the result, whether it makes it to its final destination or not. Right. It's a good piece of work because I put enough of it. Before, I would be so afraid if I was late with the producer and a producer would say, where is it? I would just hit send. And they would go, what's this? And it was only half done. It was two thirds done. It was three quarters done. And I was more afraid of that person's reaction to me than I was to put that effort into um, my own work. Right. And so I think it's the evolution of an artist, for lack of a better word, to really find out, you know, when I see documentaries about like Spielberg or De Palma or Mm -hmm. Francis Coppola, John Milius or whoever. Right. And they knew as kids, you know, they were going to be writers and they went to <laughs> SC or wherever, some big school. And, you know, they not to say that they didn't have their own difficulties and crosses to bear, sure. but they knew at a very early age and kind of trained their minds and hone in on doing this. I reverse engineered myself and backed into this. I don't know how right. I got it. And <laughs> it took that period of time, I think, to figure out, who I wanted to be, how I wanted to be, yeah. you know, in it, in order to to speak to what the question was about, you know, fear of not working or fear of this or fear of that or fear just in general. Yeah. I still feel all of the things that I always felt. I think I just have better ways of dealing with it and sure. have found techniques of uh, calming my mind when my mind is calm um, right. to handling it. So. What so what what is your response then when you're you know, say you're writing on something um 
and say it's in the early stages, right? Like this is something that, you know, you haven't taken out to anyone. It's only, you know, your own thing right now. Mm-hmm. And you get a certain part down the road and you start to hear that voice in your head saying, this sucks. This is useless. Like, no point. What are you doing? Like, people read this. They're going to find out you're a bad writer. Like, you know, whatever that little thing. And I'm not, you know, like, of course, I don't want to project those types of insecurities mm-hmm. on people. But I know that's something that a lot of people share. And it sounds <sighs> like you as well. In What's your response to that? I think you have to be true to, you know, I've been in Hollywood long enough to be able to say, I haven't found a genius yet. I haven't found anyone (laughs) who is completely secure with themselves and everything that they Uh do is perfect. What I found is people who are willing to commit so much to a particular thing Mm -hmm. that regardless of what you or I may think about it, they've put everything they had into it. And that's the thing that they can rest assured with. In the beginning of my career, when I needed that validation in that way, Mm that's sort of the period of time that you're talking about, which sort of inflamed all of the stuff that really wasn't doing me any good. It's like right. um, it only it only makes it worse. Um, and it's hard to avoid because until you sort of have made it across a bridge, you're on the other side of the bridge. Mm-hmm. And so I get I get that thing. Yeah. The sort of the Joseph Campbell of it all, that dark night of the soul that you're talking about, I'm getting from that place where you're constantly beating yourself up about your work and how and the fear of what other people are going to think of it. Um, The writers that I admire, Mm -hmm. the writers who have helped me a tremendous amount, are people who are able to feel that feeling, not just keep going, Mm -hmm. but develop whatever skill that they have to such a degree that their work sort of can't be denied. Like um, where I am in this process for me, kind of like what I just said to you a moment ago, is I know when it works for me. Right. Whether the other person receives it in that way. And this comes to pitching too. I used to be a horrible pitcher. Mm-hmm. I, I always was, I was sort of like Morgan Freeman in the Shawshank Redemption going up for parole. Uh-huh. Um I would sit across from a group of people who more often than not did not look like me. And as soon as I walked in the room, really big guy, I'm like six, seven and uh, oh, a wow. lot. And so when I walked in the room immediately, that's the first thing they see. It's like um, the bear at the circus, like they <laughs> broke the chain and he's going to kill us. Yeah. So I would see that in their eyes at first. And then I have to sit down in a chair and I have to convince people of my idea of right. uh, please, you know, buy this thing. And my focus was so much on what they thought of me that it was paralyzing. I remember my first pitch, my first pitch in the network. The head of the network was in on this pitch because I had um, someone who had had a successful show on his network some years ago. So he was there, a bunch of people. And it was almost like he wanted to say stop because I have no idea what the hell you're saying. Wow. And I listened to an agent, and I listened to this person. It's like everybody, and it was, a, it was a complete mess. And I walked out of that room like, I will never go through that ever again. Yeah. Fast forward to the period I was talking about when I was sick, and I came out of that sickness. And yeah. I said, I'm going to commit myself to the work. I'm going to commit myself to the idea. And when I'm sitting in front of those people again, I'm going to tell them the idea. What they do with the idea is on them. They can buy it. They can say no. They can say whatever they want to say. Yeah. But 
my focus right now is the idea, not how the idea is going to be received. And I think universally saying that regardless of whether it's the pitch, whether it's the work itself, um, whether it's whatever endeavor you're trying to uh, you're trying to, to, to get across or whatever you're trying to reach, there's only so much you can control. And I think the anxiety comes from trying to control the outcome. Right, right. And wanting the other person. And you can't, you can write the greatest script. There are people who hate Apocalypse Now. Sure, there are people yeah. who hate The Exorcist. There are people who hate fill in the blank of great movie. Right. And whatever you may think a great movie is, you can't control what another person thinks about you or the work. Right. But you can't control what you put into the work. You can't control how much of an effort you apply to the work itself. You can't you can control the amount of discipline you put into learning to be good at the thing that you do as far right. as the rules. There is a methodology of telling a story. Of course. You can control how much of yourself, you, you know, how you hone your skill set. Right. And the rest is what it is. And my therapist every once in a while will tell me something I do not want to hear. I love her for it. <laughs> but, and we, I always point it out when she does it, when I want to say, <laughs> when I'm looking for a shortcut, when I'm looking yeah. for something, but I, this hurts and I don't want it to hurt. And I just say, well, Rodney, that's kind of what life is. The things hurt <laughs> sometimes. And I look at her and I just want to, uh, because... <laughs> You're I'm in a looking dead for, end. You have no more roads. Yeah, to, yeah. Didn't Freud say something about this? And there's a way that if you just say these four words, it doesn't bother you anymore. It's <laughs> like, nah, nah, you got to kind of go through that one. Yeah. And I think that's what this is, what you're talking about right now. Is there a way, the fact that you're talking about it and the fact mm -hmm. that you can connect to it and you're just meeting me now and I can connect to it and probably thousands, if not millions of other people can connect to it, yeah. means that there's a reality to this fear thing that, and I read in Stephen Pressfield's book, uh, The War of Art, uh, which Great is book. an incredible book. Um, I believe it's, you know, it's the folks that don't worry that are the hacks. Those are the ones that can't write. It's the ones that sort of, um, <laughs> You know, it's, yeah, this is great. Look, I just finished it. This is fantastic. <laughs> Those are the people that you can sort of kind of dismiss. Mm -hmm. It's the ones that worry, which is actually a good thing because you care so much about the thing that you're doing. Yeah. That you want other folks to care about it too. And that care, probably seven times out of 10, you've included that in the work. Yeah. You know? And so um, that's it's a good like, thing. It's like getting that, that, that care and that attention and that nervousness, like just toned down just enough where it allows you to sort of push yeah. through the resistance. Yeah. Because it can get in the way. It can get in the way of something good that you're doing because you're second guessing yourself. Um, yeah. And trust your my, instincts. My writing partner, uh, Max Bornstein, mm. who has um, his ability emotionally, he is the most emotionally endurant person, if that's an actual word or term. Um, you know, he told me a story one time. I'm sorry, Max, to be telling your stories, but I want to tell you a story. You can get rid of me if you want to. For like four days when he was working on a project, like uh -huh. he was so dialed in that he was like, I just got up to go to the bathroom. I don't even think I ate, you know, he was just, it was him and the work. Sure. And, you know, we're doing the Lakers show, scripted show for HBO yeah. right now. And, um, you know, we've written the bulk of episodes together and, um, you know, we have started these scripts at least a dozen times, wow. which means there's probably another 10 times that he started them alone because 
He's been in it and he's doing it. And we went over them this morning and scripts are absolutely fantastic. But part of that fantastic is it's never done. It's never. I remember last story. I remember um, when I went from sitcoms, it wasn't like this magical thing that I come out of the hospital and now I'm just writing from my heart. Um, There's a director by the name of Alan Hughes, who's a good friend of mine as well. And he gave me an opportunity to work on a drama, uh, one of the first times I'd ever done it outside of wanting to do it. And uh, it was a good idea. And I pitched him my version of the idea. He said, oh, man, I love that. Go ahead. Go do it. And so I went back and for two weeks, put everything down. I just put my heart into the script. And it's like, whew, the end. I'm good. And I give him the script back. And he oh, man, this is a good start. And I'm like, start. (laughs) <laughs> you hear the two weeks, you know, it's like, I, I, did you didn't hear that part. And some 50 to 60 drafts later, um, and I'd never done that before. I worked on sitcoms and on sitcoms, you're going to do one a week, whether it's yeah. good, bad or indifferent. You're going to do one. It's going to yep. shooting on Wednesday. There's going to be a light that says, you know, yep. shooting. And regardless of what they're saying, they're going to say something. And this totally. was something else. This was something that required um, the, its own due and due diligence to continue to hone it and shape it and mold it and mold it and mold it. And yeah. ironically, the project didn't go forward, but it was the sample that changed my career. It was the wow. sample that got me vinyl. Um, it got me Runaways. It got me American Gods. It's got right. me in rooms that I never thought I would be in in front of people that I'd never. And I kept working on it. Like as I evolved as a writer, I kept going back to that script and going over it again and again and again. Right. And I'm still eating off the script to this day. Now I have a bunch <laughs> more that I feel are as good, if not better. But totally. because of that script and because of that process of guys like Max and Alan, I was able to take the the rawness out of my work and refine it and hone it to such a place where I think um, it served me relatively well. Sure. Yeah, that no, that makes that makes total sense. That's that's really interesting to hear. I um yeah, I've I've been seeing that my girlfriend works on SNL and and you know, that's that's a very similar thing you're talking about with sitcoms where every week you're making a show like good, bad or or indifferent, like those sketches are going on air, they're performed in front of people, so like you just have to get them as good as you can. And, and some now will sort work of, and some won't work and totally. can't really judge them. You got to move on to it's like a quarterback throwing an interception. You got to keep playing. Yep. Come Monday, you got to be ready to to go to the next yeah. play. Um, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious though. You know, after all that experience in TV, both in comedy and in drama, you're you're jumping into comics. You start doing work for uh, Marvel, for Lion Forge, and obviously you've got Philadelphia going. Which which lessons did you feel were translating the strongest to the the new medium as you kind of got started in it? And which things do you feel like you needed to uh, really you know hone in on and learn um, that were totally new? Uh, again, I think it was the um, the plot thing. You know, my right. voice in comics was connected to my voice when I loved comics the most. And yeah. you know, you look at my Falcon book and you will see a lot of words. I remember the first note I got back from Marple was this feels ponderous because there were so many words that when I got the art back, you almost had to look past the words to get to the art because there were so many of them. Sure. And uh, I think learning today's audience, um, learning how to say more with less, I think um, 
you know, learning, becoming a better storyteller in this medium. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, television, film, comics, they all have their own sort of rules that uh, apply. And I did not know the comic book rules. I just got an opportunity to write a comic book. Yeah. And the, the, the blessing of being able to do it again and again and again and refine your process and getting better, the same way I'm talking about writing a drama script, mm-hmm. you know, was the same when it comes to comics. And right. I think Philadelphia has benefited from the mistakes and the flaws in some of the earlier work because I've been able to work out some of the kinks and I think, and find my voice. That was another thing that I, I, we haven't spoken about was, mm-hmm. you know, each, every writer, that one that you're talking about that worries about what the other person is going to think, there's a story that only they can tell. And right. there's a voice that they have within that only they can speak to. And if you refine that voice, if you learn to have confidence and you build a relationship with that voice, you begin to write from that place where I can pick up a Stephen King book and you can tell me it's Richard Bachman or whoever. And I know sure. it's Stephen King because I've <laughs> read so many Stephen King books. Right. Um, when you can do that with your career, when you can tell, I can tell a David Fincher movie. Yeah. You know, I can tell like Martin Scorsese, like certain people have their own style of doing a thing. Yeah. And I can tell what that thing is just by, you know, looking at it. And I know it's going to be different than what I do. Right. And, you know, there's something about that. There's something about um, finding your voice that I think builds that sense of confidence that you're looking for because. It's your relationship with you and your mind and your instrument. It's your, um, you know how you work yourself out of this process and you know that you're how to work with you. And that comes with time. That comes with um, sometimes learning lessons the hard way. But as long as you learn the lesson, it gives you hope for being able to move forward. Uh, But back to your question, as far as, um, you know, when it came to comics in particular and finding, you know, doing it in a very specific way is really right. about honing my voice and say, what is it about me that makes my writing entertaining? What is it about me that makes me interested in my writing and the types right. of stories that I want to tell? How do I like telling stories? Yeah. And I've been fortunate enough that enough people have given me opportunities that I'm writing wildly different things. Like I'm writing a little superhero over here, a yeah. little horror over here, a little mystery over here, a little this, a little that. And things that I never thought, comedy, like things that totally. I never thought that I would ever be writing. Um, but all of it has sort of served um, what I'm trying to figure out about me as a writer. I think you can read Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the closest thing to me as a writer. Mm. It's got heartwarming moments it's got moments of drama it's got moments of horror and i throw a joke or two in there every once in a while too to to keep it light and airy but never at the never at the expense of the overall story because i'm like if it's if it's too funny if we're laughing too much then something's wrong (laughs) you should be scared i'm trying to scare you at some point totally um well as as we're wrapping up here uh i do want to to ask a little bit about zombie love um now the i guess i'm curious about a few things but but what it is you know in terms of the publicity that i've seen is is you are starting a a comic book publishing company um that is sort of you know spinning off from from philadelphia which seems to be moving underneath this this label um is this something that you're starting complementary to image or are you going totally on your own and, and doing your own thing entirely? I'm going totally on my own. I think there's a little bit of confusion. And certainly if you look yeah. at the website and you see all of this stuff, um, 
Philadelphia, the Philadelphia spinoff, and two other stories will be under Image, period. And it'll always be with Image. Uh, as long as mm. Image has us and they say, hey, you know, we're tired of this thing, go away. <laughs> it'll be with Image. Right. Uh, Zombie Love Studios, um, and I think part of the uh, confusion with it is we're sort of all making the books together. Okay. So since all of them are being made together, it feels like it's a singular thing yeah um but zombie love is right now i hope to publish three books at the end of um 2021 COVID plays a lot in the schedule so if it's 2022 <laughs> yeah. please don't right. be angry with me i can't i can only control what i can control the world's on fire <laughs> yes um it'll be horror mystery sci-fi okay. um supernatural theme stories um Got it. Most of them are very personal to me, like Philadelphia. Um, I'm looking to my whiteboard as I talk <laughs> to you. Um, the first one is called Crownsville. It's about a, um, a black mental asylum in my hometown. Oh, cool. That uh, is sort of like The Shining. Uh, it's been closed for about a decade or so now, but um, come to find a lot of experiments were done on the patients, and um, it's steeped in history. And... You know, I always looked at it when I drove past, when I was on my way to my security guard gigs. They was like, what if that place was haunted? What if that place was haunted? <laughs> and so it's basically a haunted house uh, story. Oh, um, cool. Then there's another one, uh, Florence and Normandy. It's a science fiction attack, uh, alien attack story. Oh, wow. The stories by myself and the rapper, entrepreneur, actor exhibit, because I would never dare just say rapper. That would be an of insult course. to that man's. Hey, uh, yeah. His feats in business are astounding. Truly. Um, so I'm writing the script, but we came up with the story. So we're doing that one together. And the last one is Blackula, uh, the actual right. MGM character that um, I have been working for months now to get the rights to with MGM. Amazing. And I'm doing my version of a. Um, not necessarily just a reboot, but an extension of the stories that uh, were told back in the 70s of uh, the original Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream. So oh, cool. those are the first three. And then we got a couple of projects slated for 2022. But um, amazing. Working with all the guys from the Philadelphia world, uh, Jason and our editor, Greg Tumbarello and, yeah. uh, you know, Inkers and um, you know, sure. a bunch of great, great folks are involved. And uh assembling this stuff together, but we're very proud of the stories and we're very proud of um, the direction we're going. It's just a hell of a lot of work that I didn't anticipate. I thought, man, it's yeah, easy. Sure. It's easy. We just write <laughs> comic books. Yeah. No, you're just it's not. starting a new comic book company. Uh, it's, it's always an yes. easy. On top easy of, you know, trying to run TV shows and writing movies and trying yeah. to live a life and raise kids. It's like beyond, I added something, this monstrosity, to the center of an already complicated life. Yeah, you have plenty of free time. I mean, there's you're not you're not doing that much. <laughs> no free time. I'm so far behind. I apologize to publishers out there who send me the terse email of you said a week ago, Rodney. Where is our script? You know, the artist has hey. finished issue three. We were waiting for issue four. We'd like to get this thing up. So yeah, man. I mean, look, we're getting more Rodney Barnes comics. We're getting more Rodney Barnes shows. Uh, I don't think too many people are going to be complaining. I hope so. I hope not. Twitter, Twitter is now an avenue to tell me exactly how you feel about it in the moment. Um, well, as we wrap up, uh, I've got one final question. But before that, let people know where they can find you, what they should be looking for, and all that stuff. On the Twitter. 
because I'm old, so I like to put the word the in front of everything. <laughs> on the Twitter and the Instagram, you can find me at the Rodney Barnes on both. And right. those are the best two places to find me. Websites, oh, yeah. RodneyBarnes.com and ZombieLoveStudios.com. They both have uh, some places where you can write me and say lovely things, only lovely right on. things. Well, uh, the last question that we ask every guest who uh, comes on the show is, why do you love comics? Uh, it's the last place that is, it reminds me of innocence. It reminds me of idealism. It reminds me of a time in my life where it wasn't just about business. It wasn't, it was my relationship with story in its purest sense. It was, um, I'm an only child. So I was a pretty lonely kid and it was nothing like, uh, big stack of comics to make me feel like <laughs> I had something to look forward to. If you gave me like this size is a pretty big cup. <laughs> yeah, sure. You gave me a big lemonade <laughs> and a big stack of comic books. You had to worry about Rodney for the better part of a day. Cause I was going <laughs> to read them two or three times anyway. And it's something about even in adulthood, I say this all the time, every Wednesday, uh, like I'm dealing with my uh, dealer, uh, I go to the comic book store <laughs> I will buy forty or fifty dollars worth of comic books. I will sure. read twelve dollars worth of comic books, and <laughs> I will go back next Wednesday and buy more of things that I may not have time to read. But I do yeah. that not just in support of the comic book industry, but it's something that's deeply ingrained in my DNA. I have this connection to this thing. Yeah. Uh, and now there's eBay, so I can go oh, back man. and be sentimental and buy all of these things that I used to read because oh man, that was great. It's yeah. 150 bucks. Bang. You know. <laughs> so that's that's Good it, look. man. Love. Amazing. Love would be the word. I love comic <laughs> books. I love comic books. Well, Rodney, I love stories. Hell yeah. I, I, I will uh, I will toast to that. Um, Rodney, thank you so much for joining the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks once more to Rodney Barnes for joining the show. Uh, you can find his work wherever good comics are sold, and you can follow him on Twitter at the Rodney Barnes. Uh, I want to thank Sean Rosner for the music in the show. You can follow Sean on Instagram at Sean D Rosner. Thanks to Garm for sponsoring the show. You can go to that might be cool, or sorry, you can go to GarmCompany.com/tmbc. Uh, and thank you all once more for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I can't tell you. I, I know I say it a lot, but I, I really mean it. I can't tell you how amazing it is. Uh, anytime that I hear from uh, listeners, whenever I'm, you know, I this last week had an email from somebody talking about the Matt Fraction episode, um, and you know, just honestly amazing uh to hear from everybody um and so thank you so much for for listening everybody and if you are digging it uh, i would love it if you could share it you know with a friend or whatever i you know we all are kind of trying to make our little communities of of people who make comics right it's it's sometimes hard to do this if uh if no one around you sort of feels you know what you're saying or, or understands what what you're doing um and so if you have any friends who are making comics anyone who you know is is interested in this path or even just curious about the craft of comics uh 
please let them know about the show. Uh, I, I would greatly appreciate that. And I mean, word of mouth is the best tool that any of us have to sort of spread the word. Um, but again, thank you for listening. I hope you stick around and, and uh, stay with the show because I am loving making it. And um, I'm loving learning from all of these incredible guests like Rodney Barnes and everyone that I've had and will have on the show in the future. Um, once more, just a reminder, you can follow me at Jason Halftones on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can follow TMBC Workshop on both platforms as well. And uh, if you like the show so much uh, and you really, really want to help bump us up in those charts, please leave a rating or review on uh, whichever podcast app you choose. Uh, One good piece of news, actually, that I saw this week, I I don't keep too much up with, um, you know, with 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 the charts and stuff like that or with the analytics. But lately, I've had to, you know, dive into it more because of sponsorship stuff. Uh, And. I realized that this show apparently has been consistently charting in the top 50 for visual arts podcasts, which is incredible. I like, I, I don't even know what to say about that other than like, thank you so much for listening. Um, but that, you know, that's not comics. That's not like any, like that's visual arts, which is a very broad category in iTunes, um, or in Apple podcasts. I don't know what they prefer to be called, but, uh, I'm honestly truly amazing. Um, I'm so blown away, and that's honest. It's 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 incredible. Um, and in the same week, actually, uh, Disaster Girls, which is another podcast I produce, uh, which is Jordan Cruciola and Amanda, Amanda Smith um, talking about disaster movies, that show has started popping up in the top fifty of film reviews. Um, so you know this 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 little network that's uh, you know mostly a hobby has has kind of started you know building up some. Uh, I don't know, some, some, some listeners, some love. And I really, really appreciate, um, you know, people coming in and, and paying attention to what we're doing here. So, you know, once more, just thank you so much. Listen, you know, leave a review and a rating if, if you're really liking the show and, uh, please feel free to reach out. Um, if you, you know, have any questions, comments, feedback, um, you know, Twitter, Instagram, always open, uh, so let me know if you're digging and, and, uh, if you have any ideas or, Hey, if you even have any complaints, please let me know. Uh, But without further ado, I think it's uh, time that we send this ship off to sail. So uh, until next time, keep at it. That might be cool.com. You never know.